This is the Tea Podcast by Developing Lafayette. I'm your host, Ben Powers. On this podcast, you'll hear from business owners, entrepreneurs, and community influencers who all play a role in moving Lafayette Parish and South Louisiana forward. We got a great episode today for you. We're going to be talking with uh, CEO and Chairman of Giles Automotive and Mr. Bubbles Auto Spa, Bob Giles himself. We're going to be kind of getting to know Bob from an early level of just kind of how he got started in the business and his upbringing up to this point and talking about his companies and what the future looks like. So uh, sit back, relax, and I hope you enjoy the show. Alrighty, Bob. So go ahead and uh, just high level, just kind of give me a little bit of uh, how's your day going and, uh, you know, kind of introduce yourself. Okay. Day's going great. Always got a lot of things on my plate every day. Oh, of course. Uh, yeah. A lot of stuff going on at one time, but, um, but yeah, um, things are great. Awesome. All right. So I guess I want to go ahead and get started into just kind of getting to know you. Like uh, I mentioned, I want to know, um, are you originally from the Lafayette area? No, I actually um, moved to Lafayette on my 28th birthday, um, February of 1982. 1982, yeah. 28th birthday? Yeah, on, my, on the day of my birthday, didn't know a person and uh, moved here from um, actually a uh, Dickinson, Texas, just south of uh, Houston, where I had an apartment, and I was working over there for my dad, uh, who was also in the car business. Okay. Well, so what got you to Lafayette? Like, at 28 years old, I mean, that's not your early 20s. I mean, that's your later 20s, so that usually people in after 25 kind of have where they are, and where they where they figured out they, where they want to be. So, like, what got you from you know, the Houston area to Lafayette. I mean, obviously your dad was in the car business. You're in the car business now. Why Lafayette? Well, at the time I was working for my father who had a Volkswagen dealership and I was his sales manager. And I approached Volkswagen when I was around 26 years old about the possibility of me getting a Volkswagen franchise somewhere. And it just so happened that the dealer in Lafayette had gone out of business and there was no Volkswagen dealer in Lafayette. And they agreed to give me the franchise when I was like 26 years old. 26 years old. Wow. Like, so why, why at 26? I mean, that seems like a, like a bold thing to do to give a 26 year old a franchise. Like how much experience have you had in the car business prior to them giving you the franchise. I mean, you had to have some. I had a lot of experience. I um, started, my father had a Ford dealership in North Texas. And when I was 11 years old, I started working for him, washing cars, uh, 25 cents an hour <laughs> in, the, <laughs> in the hot sun with a hose and a rag and a chamois and uh, all day during the summer and on weekends. And, uh, and then as I got older, uh, he you know, put me in different areas of the automotive business. So I did everything from driving the parts truck to work in the parts department, working as a technician in the shop, a service advisor. Um, I worked in accounting. I answered the phone. Uh, so you did a little bit of everything. I, I did everything. And, uh, and then uh, we moved back to the Houston area. I went to Texas A&M, got a degree in accounting. And after, after that, then I went to work for him and started selling cars. Okay. And then became sales manager. So I had done every position in the dealership by the time I was 26 years old. So I was young, but I, you know, really had 15 years of experience already at that point. 
Wow. So 15 years of experience at 26 years old. That I mean, a lot of people, they're trying to get into the job market at that age and you know, just out of college and like they're like, I don't have any experience. I mean, that's just the kind of the way the, the world works. But it's crazy. 15 years of experience pretty much by the time you're 26. That's that's a lot of years already. I mean, starting at 11, right? That's right. Yeah. So and I had a good business background. And so, um, you know, I'm like you. I look back today and I go, what was Volkswagen thinking? You know, given a 26 year old <laughs> a Volkswagen franchise. And then on top of that, convinced them to also um, let me have Audi and Porsche. So I opened up, uh, you know, in 1982 with those three franchises in Lafayette, Volkswagen, Porsche, and Audi. Wait, so there was an Audi and a Porsche dealership in Lafayette? Yes, I opened up with those three franchises, yeah. What happened? Was Lafayette not ready for Audi and Porsche, or like what was the... Because I moved here in 2010, there there wasn't an Audi or a Porsche at that time. Right. So, um, you know, in in 1982, uh, shortly after that, the oil industry kind of, uh, you know, had a a significant downturn. Right. and we did very well with it. I mean, we our planning volume for Porsche was like one a month, and we sold 130 our first year. So we did extremely well with Porsche. We sold about 350 Audis, uh, a lot of Volkswagens. And then, you know, the price of the Porsches went up significantly, and the economy went down. And by 86, 87, um, you know, Lafayette was almost like a ghost town. <laughs> and I picked up other franchises. I picked up uh uh, Volvo, Subaru, um, I had Saab. So I, I picked up a lot of franchises just trying to survive uh, in the in downturn of the oil industry. It was a great education for me. And uh, and then in the late 80s, I was those franchises were kind of floundering and, except for Volvo. And I had the opportunity to, uh, to pick up the Nissan franchise. The dealer here in town had, had gone out of business, filed bankruptcy, and I was trying to, to buy it and actually – ended up buying it out of bankruptcy. And when I did, um, I didn't have room for Nissan with the other franchises. I tried to sell them, and I couldn't even sell the Porsche franchise. So I ended up terminating uh, all of them but Volvo. And then uh, in 89-90, had those two franchises and started growing from there. Okay, so you had to terminate uh, Audi and Porsche, and you kept Volvo, correct? Yes, and, and Volkswagen. And Volkswagen. And Subaru. And Saab. Yeah. Okay, and then Saab's not here today, is it? Or no, is no. It... Saab is no longer uh, an uh, automobile okay, manufacturer uh, okay. anywhere. Um, and it's spelled S A A two A's B, right? A, correct. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, what happened with that dealership? That that model of a car? Like, why is it discontinued? Just uh, you know, I, I just think Saab had a difficulty with their brand worldwide, and uh, they were also in aerospace. And I'm not sure if they're still in aerospace. But uh, and they may still be selling some SOBs in Europe. I'm not sure, but they quit distributing them to the U.S. Okay. So Nissan. I mean, since I've been here, and since I've been little now, little for me, or I guess in relation to you, is like late '90s. I was coming of age of teenage years, and I would watch KLFY or KTC getting ready for school in the morning, and I would see you, and then I would see. Uh, uh, Hampton has it slapping the windows of the cars and those two dealerships I remember because I wasn't originally from Lafayette I was like an hour north but I remembered like Giles and uh, Hampton has it was like the car dealerships that I would see of course you you'd have your hub city but you know um, 
so how did like Nissan do whenever you got it? Like, because I mean, being a kid, that's what I would remember just all the Nissan commercials and the Toyota commercials that your competitor has. So, like, it felt like that was the brand of car that maybe, maybe have taken over the, the Lafayette Acadiana area. Yeah, you know the the price point was great, the quality was good, uh, and they made a you know a lot of different models of cars all the way to to the Z, you know. So they yeah. went from the two hundred Z to three hundred Z, and you know I think uh, it's like three is three, it three fifty or three seventy now? Yeah, wow. three seventy Z, and uh, so those are all very pop- popular. You know, the Maxima has always been a great vehicle, and uh, so you know the Sentra. Um, so all of those are very very popular uh, vehicles to have. I remember one time, you know, at Nissan's uh, storage facility, I think it was in Tennessee, they had a big hailstorm, and uh, the dealers went up there, and we bought those vehicles with hail damage and and took the, the insurance money, and I was actually did a big sale at one point where we were selling some of the vehicles at half off. Uh, their normal price uh, because of the hell damage and the incentives that Nissan had. Yeah. So there were some some crazy times back in the the 90s and so forth with and 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 a lot of volume with that with that product line as well. Okay, so you went to Texas A and M, got a degree in accounting, and started back working. Was your goal in getting a degree just so that you can improve yourself in the accounting side? Was it all? Were you always steered to be in the car dealership kind of industry? Yeah, that's a great question. I, uh, when I went to college, I started off in mechanical engineering. My dad was a mechanical engineer and, um, and I, I felt like I wanted to be in the car business, but I thought, well, maybe I just think I do because as a matter <laughs> of fact, both my grandfathers were also car, car wow, owners, you know? so that's legacy. Yes. So, um, I thought, you know, love cars. Maybe I'll go to work for Ford or something and I'll design cars. And after my first semester, I said, you know what? I just want to be a car dealer. So I went home, talked to my dad and said, Hey, if you had it to do all over again, what degree would you get? He said, I'd get the best business degree I can. I said, well, what do you think's the hardest? He said, probably accounting. I said, okay, I'll do accounting, you know? Wow. And uh, so that's why I ended up with an accounting degree. And I look back, it's probably the best advice that anybody could have ever given me. It has proven to be extremely valuable to me and my business. And, um, I don't think I would have had the success that I've had, had it not been for that accounting degree that I got. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's good advice. I mean, but you know, some people, they go through life never getting a degree and, you know, they become successful, a smaller group of them, of course. And then some people that never get a degree just end up living, you know, I guess decent enough lives, but you getting a degree is what really in for you, propelled you in that business? Well, I wouldn't say it propelled me, but, you know, I think it's my drive and ambition and and desire to be successful that did that. But to have the accounting degree um, to help help me make appropriate business decisions to be able to read a financial statement, you know, a lot of, you know, unfortunately, there, there are some dealers in the in the automobile business, or I'm sure other business people that didn't have the benefit of a strong business background, and they rely on other people. But, with my knowledge, I, you know, I have a CFO that works for me that has a CPA degree. I'm not a CPA, but I'm able to say sometimes to her, you know what? I don't think that's the right way to make that entry and, and, and actually stand up and say, no, I think it should be done this way and actually have a discussion that otherwise they just say, okay, you're, you're an accountant. I'm not, I'm going to accept what you, you say is right. right. And oftentimes 
I'm right and she's wrong and she'll think about it and say, you know what, you're right. But having that understanding of accounting like I do has enabled me to, uh, to be able to do those types of things. And, and I, you know, it's helped me um, be more profitable. Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's really an interesting um, thing. I mean, obviously, you said you're not a CPA, but, you know, with your ability, with, an, with your accounting degree and just your knowledge of the car dealership as a whole, I mean, recognizing little things like that, I mean, that's, that makes or breaks a business sometimes. It, it can. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Um, so tell me, tell me a little bit about where, um, where is Giles, I guess, today, after, you know, post-pandemic, because um, I know the, the, the pandemic kind of shook up the car industry a decent amount. Uh, and especially over the past, I guess, five, six years, uh, companies like Carvana has come onto the scene, uh, Vroom. Uh, and then, you, of course, you've always had your auto traders, your uh, cars.com. Um, how, how is the automotive industry in relation to, I guess, the dealership model um, today and how is it changing well, you, with the pandemic, there was a supply sh- chain shortage, uh, particularly with the microchip. And uh, and I didn't realize, but I thought vehicles had one microchip. I later found out that <laughs> they have every little thing, you know, power Buku windows. Amounts, and, yeah. yeah, and cruise control and just about everything requires a microchip to operate. So that caused a significant decline in inventory, which caused prices to go up, which caused a shortage of used vehicles because there was less trade-ins. And, um, but the auto dealers as a, as a whole did well, we had less inventory, but it also improved our profit margins because there was less vehicles. And in the past, in a lot of cases, there's been too many vehicles in the market. And, uh, when that happens, when there's too much supply and not enough demand, then that drives down prices and profitability. But you mentioned Carvana and Vroom and yeah. both those two public companies are at near bankruptcy right now. And so what has happened is, um, and they've never, for the most part, ever been profitable. Um, but with it, what has happened, there was kind of a bubble created with the shortage and prices on the, in the used car market went up significantly, 20 or 30%. And in the last four or five months, it has fallen significantly, more back to what an average market is. And so those uh, you know, companies that have huge used car inventories are sitting with an inventory that is thousands per car uh, higher than the actual market value. So they're taking huge losses right yeah. now in that, in, in, with that model. Um, you know, fortunately, uh, you know, we, we managed our inventory well and uh, we, you know, we had some impact from that. Every car dealer has, but um, we turned our inventory quickly. And, uh, and so we've come out the other side, uh, great. And, and, uh, we're doing very well in the used car market, but you know, those public companies, um, and I've seen some of their commercials and they, they <laughs> try to make the car dealer look, look like the bad guy. Right, right, you know? right. Uh, there's one commercial where they're literally, you know, shocking the guy and trying to get him to agree to a price. And then, uh, you know, they show their, their trailer pull up with the car on it. And, but you know, those public companies aren't here in Lafayette. You know, you can't pick up the phone and call somebody if you have a problem, if you have a service problem or whatever. And, you know, my philosophy is, is I try to make myself available to anyone. You know, I have a place on our website where you can uh, go on and tell Bob and send me an email. We put a, a, we give everybody my cell phone number. If they want to call me, they can call me. Um, I'm, I'm there. I want to make sure that if, if a customer has an issue that uh, we get it resolved. Yeah. 
Well, look, I got to get my sponsors mentioned real quick here. So let me go ahead and do that. And then we'll continue because I have some more questions on those companies and just kind of how things are still going. Support for the podcast is brought to you by the Music Academy of Acadiana. Acadiana's top choice for music lessons in piano, guitar, voice, drums, violin, saxophone, flute, audio production, and more. They teach students of all ages and styles. They have sent students to college to compete in major music competitions and have also premiered on major TV music contests like American Idol and The Voice. They are founded by Tim Benson, who is a University of Louisiana at Lafayette Music School graduate. The Academy has been voted as a top finalist in the best music school by readers of the Times of Acadiana since 2016, and they have won the National Music School of the Year Award in 2014. Their goal is to make music lessons fun, educational, and to help foster the next generation of musicians and creative thinkers. You can find out more at their website at www.musicacademyacadiana.com. You can also check out their Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for more information. Chase Group Construction is a general contractor and land developer that specializes in planning, design, and construction as a design-build company. They combine the cost awareness of a contractor who knows current market pricing of materials and labor with the design process of the architect in one company. Chase Group utilizes the latest advanced technology in GPS serving equipment, automated scheduling programs, and cloud-based project management software to ensure quality control and progress documentation. Chase Group goes beyond construction by leading traffic studies, soil reports, zoning requirements, environmental reports, and other feasibility studies to ensure a viable project from the beginning. Chase Group takes the lead and becomes your one point of contact for the entire design build process. They have a diverse portfolio of projects that range from medical to restaurant to multi-unit shopping center developments. Dream, design, develop, Chase Group Construction. You can check out their websites at chasegroupconstruction.com for more information. All right. So going back to the those those companies and kind of the what people were saying, I guess in the uh, I guess in the world of automotive hunting, like if people are looking for cars, uh, I, I've been seeing a lot of talk about that the car salesperson role seems to be dying. And I don't know that for a fact because I'm not in the car industry. I don't know what that looks like. But I guess what they're doing is looking at car uh, companies like Carvana and then Cars.com and even uh, CarMax where it seems like you don't have the ability to, as a, as a customer, to, I guess, haggle and maybe – Maybe it feels like that that car salesperson role is being virtually eliminated because of the the one way kind of transactional situation that they have. You don't have, you, I guess, you don't have the middle guy. Is that kind of where you see the industry going, or do you feel like car salespeople's positions are 
pretty safe. I think they're pretty safe. Uh, and um, but but you're right as far as pricing, particularly on used cars today, uh, because information is so readily available. It's easy for anyone to go online, put a particular type of make model or whatever they're interested in, and pull up a, a list that meet that criteria and see pricing. And so we know that we have, and we we actually have software that we can go into and we can see how competitive vehicles are being priced and we can then make sure that we are in the top 10%, 5% as far as pricing with competitive makes. And so that drives down the price because of the amount of information and people can actually search the whole country if they want for a vehicle. And so we know the price that we put out there has to be competitive. If there's 30 Nissan Altimas 2020, and we're in 30th place on price, then we're probably not going to get a lot of calls or interest in that vehicle. We got to be in the top four or five if we're going to, if we're going to sell that car. And so from a, from a price negotiation perspective, you're correct. I mean, the price we put on the internet is pretty much the best we can do, but the difference is what kind of service are you going to get? You know, the salesperson can provide that because after the sale, if you need something, he's your point of contact. And, uh, and also a lot of times people come in and they think they want this type of car, but if the salesman does his job right and he asks the right questions, then oftentimes he can say, Mr. Customer, I really think that based on what you told me, this vehicle may be better for you. Would you want to consider something else? that maybe will fit your lifestyle and your driving habits and your family better than what you originally came in here for. And so that's where a great salesperson can make a difference. I agree with that. I agree with that. I think um, a lot of people, I guess, historically, whenever they think of car salespeople, they think of this, you know, slick back hair type of guy that's going around and like, basically trying to get you to spend the most you can. Obviously, the, the, the goal is to sell. I mean, that they're based off commission. I think we all know that. But, you know, I think that's the hesitation for a lot of people. And so I, I and I think a lot of other people I've seen will oftentimes go to a car dealership on a Sunday where there's nobody there just to have that, I guess, that, that without that awkward anxiety feeling of being approached. And I know sometimes, especially being on the car dealership a lot while the business is open, I haven't felt that anxiety in a long time. Like it used to be like 15 years ago, you get on a a lot and it was like two or three people would start walking to you and one would catch his eye and like, you know, that's the guy you're talking to. But now it it feels very, um, I guess, approachable. Like I've been on the lot and I've never felt recently like I was a, a piece of meat, I guess, coming onto the lot. Uh, so I guess, you know, coming off of that, that premise of, you know, old school thinking, I think is, is that still something that people should be, I, I, obviously you wouldn't say people should be aware of it, but like, what do you say to people that feel as if they're going to be jumped on like a piece of prey that a, like a, an eagle coming out of the sky well i can only speak from my car dealerships but uh first of all we very very rarely ever hire a salesperson from another dealership um why was bad that habits bad because habits, okay. how we our philosophy is is atypical 
And we have, uh, we've had a, a sales trainer, a recruiter that's been working for me for almost 30 years. We have our own, um, uh, we've created our own uh, sales training books. Um, we have basically a sales training university uh, within the dealership that all of our salespeople go through. It's a couple of month pro- program. Uh, no other dealership in this area offers that. And uh, so we, we do not hire salespeople from the automotive industry because of that that you're speaking of. Um, and I know I, I get what you're talking about. If I walk into a clothing store and I'm looking to buy a suit or a sport coat, I don't want a salesperson breathing down my neck watching me, right. okay, because it's uncomfortable. But on the other hand, if he's asking the right questions and asking me what I'm interested in, hey, it looks like you're a size 42 regular. Hey, we just got this, you know, new suit in over here. I'd like to show it to you. You know, if he's bringing value to the equation, then that's great. And that's what a salesperson, uh, when someone comes on the lot interested in a vehicle, he needs to add value. He needs to be able to, you know, to ask the customer questions to find out what their wants and needs are. And, you know, particularly today, there's so many different models to choose from and to help that customer narrow down what vehicle is best for them. And if he does that and he does it in a professional way, um, then I believe we add value to the sales process rather than, you know, that feeling of, oh, he's going to try to take advantage of me. And like I said earlier, you know, today, pricing is so transparent. So that's not the big part of the equation anymore. Yeah. Um, the, the part of the equation is is finding the right <clears throat> car that, that's going to service the customer well and service his needs well and, uh, and be a great vehicle for that person and their family. Yeah. That's good. That's a good take on it. I mean, obviously you speak on your companies because you don't, I, you don't know the practices of other companies and some other companies may have equal or other, other tactics, but, um, great point. So going back to kind of how you operate your companies, uh, I interviewed you a while back. I think it was, it might've been right as the pandemic was about to start or in that, in that zone. And you were telling me about, I'll oftentimes you're one of the first people to get there and one of the first, one of the last people to leave. So people may be surprised to, to hear that. And I know it's not every day that you can be the first and last to leave. Cause obviously being a human, you need to take breaks. You need to get out of the, out of town for a while. But when people hear that and they're, they're, they are surprised. What do you say? Like, why do you feel like you have to be there first and leave last? Like, what is the thought process behind that? Well, I, I've always, my dad taught me that you got to lead by example. You can't have two sets of rules. Um, and so I follow that. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I work a lot of hours because I've got a lot going on. I'm, I've got other businesses. I'm doing a, a, a real estate development. I've got office buildings. I've got, uh, you know, six car dealerships. I've got two car washes. So I'm building uh, a new Subaru building right now in the process of going through plans. I was just on a Zoom call right before I came here to go over that. Um, So I have a lot of things going on. And uh, so when I'm in town, and I do travel a lot, I work every day. I work Saturday all day. I take off Sunday. Um, But um, I I enjoy it, and, and I've... I want to continue growing the business, buying more car dealerships, opening up more car washes, and 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 
you know, I'm starting to get into the real estate business. I enjoy that because it's something a little different. And uh, so that's that's just what kind of makes me tick, yeah. so to speak. You yeah. Know? So the real estate business, that's an interesting one. So uh, are there are there buildings in Lafayette that you own or are you, you're building? What does that look like? Well, I actually have an office building in Pearland, Texas that I built a few years ago. But uh, recently I bought some land for the new Subaru building and I needed about seven or eight acres and it was very difficult to try to find eight acres somewhere that wasn't <laughs> right. extremely expensive. And, uh, and I actually found three acres on town center parkway right across from the mall on Johnson street, but it wasn't big enough, but, but adjacent to it was another 24 acres. So I down target loop. So I bought the 24, added it to the three or three and a half. And so now I had way more land than I needed. So I, uh, Picked up the phone and called Robert Daigle, who developed uh, River Ranch and yeah, Sugar Mill Pond. Correct Farms. Uh, yeah. All those. Yeah. friend of mine and said, hey, Robert, can we go to lunch? I said, I want to show you something. And I showed him the extra 19 acres I was going to have left over. And as it turned out, he was looking at 20 acres in that area. And so we uh, we we created a, a company called Creekview. There's actually a little creek that separates now the Subaru property from where we're doing this residential development. And we've acquired about 60 acres of property. Wow. And uh, we're going to do a multi-use, uh, you know, rental homes and apartments and townhouses and so forth on that 60 acres. Yeah. That is crazy. Yeah. Oh, wow, man. So, so with you getting into the real estate market in Lafayette, um, Obviously, you said land is expensive. Um, what do you think about everybody kind of running towards the Costco area? What are your thoughts on all the congestion and like every time a new business is announced for that area? And it's some of the most expensive property in Lafayette at the moment. I think roughly about a million an acre, give or take. Uh, like, do you think that's a great business move if a business can afford it or like, What's your thoughts on that area of town and all the growth that's happening and all that? I think it's great. As a matter of fact, uh, that's one of the areas that I looked at, the area between Costco and Lord's Hospital right yeah. there. Prime uh, property. Actually where um, I understand that um, Dave & Buster's is going yep. in and maybe Topgolf yep. uh, as well. I actually looked at buying 8 or 10 acres there, but uh, it was around $30 a square foot which uh, you're right, that's over a million dollars an acre. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we need a lot of acreage for a car dealership. So um, so I ultimately didn't. I found what I think is the perfect piece because it's right on Johnson Street, you know, right at the beginning of kind of auto row where all the car dealers are. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think it's great for Lafayette because for Lafayette, um, that's kind of becoming a retail hub. And we have a lot of people coming in from the outlying areas that are bringing their dollars into our city, which I think is good. And I think it's great to have all those choices, uh, and particularly the entertainment choices. I think we need, I think a top golf here is going to do extremely well. Yeah. I mean, that's one thing I think Lafayette is lacking is good family entertainment destinations. I mean, we have plenty of, uh, uh, casual bars to walk into, but those are not necessarily where you want to bring a family to go to. Uh, you know, and we have a couple of like places like cart ranch and uh, I think Epic entertainment, but as far as like national big like ideas and top golf being one of them. And then Dave and Buster's, I mean, those have been companies that people have been dreaming about ha coming to Lafayette for the longest time. And for the longest time, it's been said that those companies won't come to Lafayette because our population wasn't where it needed to be. 
So what is your what is your thoughts since you know touching on that real estate thing? What are your thoughts on why they may have potentially shifted their thoughts on smaller markets like Lafayette? Like, what do you think is either changed or what's, what do you think their thought press is? I mean, obviously you don't know for a fact, unless you do, I don't know, but what are your thoughts on those companies bringing their concepts here, which was uh, prior known to not be possible? Well, Lafayette is, has been growing. And uh, I think when you look at the demographics of the people who live in Lafayette, I think the income levels are higher, um, better educated. We got a great university here. Um, when you look at, and and the people here like to have a great time. They love entertainment. Um, you know, I look at the Chick Fil A's, and I'm going, "This is, <laughs> I, you know, we've got to have the number one Chick Fil A in the country." And as a matter of fact, I found out that the Target on Ambassador Caffrey at Settler Trace is the number one Target in the country. Wait, the Target the, the, right that here. just got renovated. Uh, yes. Yeah, wow. it's the number one Target store in the country. Okay. Wow. So when you when you hear those types of things, and I'm sure these other big companies are looking at those statistics and seeing how well um, those are doing, then why not come to Lafayette? Why do you think companies like you know Super Target? I don't even know if it's called Super Target anymore. I think they just put Target, but it's a bigger version, obviously, with the grocery store side. Uh, why do you think they're doing so well? In Lafayette, like what about Lafayette is it being a catalyst to make these companies see the potential? Well, um, I think, you know, I had the opportunity to meet the manager at that target. Well, I, I do something called pay it forward with uh, with KLFY where we go yeah, out and we surprise somebody and ask them if they know somebody that could use a thousand dollars. And we did uh, in November, we did one for Christmas and actually partnered with Target, and I put up a couple thousand, they put up 500, and we actually did one there, and I got to meet the manager. But uh, it's my understanding, uh, you know, they actually send managers from other stores around the country to Lafayette to train underneath him. So I think he's had, he gets a lot of credit for Target doing so well in this market. Uh, But I think the location is perfect. I mean, look how fast Youngsville is growing. And, you know, I got to believe the population in Youngsville is coming to Lafayette to shop. Yeah. You know, and so I think it's location is important. And I just think the, uh, how that store is managed is obviously has made an impact on it. Yeah. I guess, um, I guess where my question is, and that's a great response. I appreciate that. I guess where my question was more geared towards is the, I guess the geographics and, you know, and the way our city's designed it's a different layout than most cities most cities baton rouge uh you know new orleans lake charles even shreveport bozier area uh alexandria kind of but are they're built along the interstate usually where their 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 higher end retail areas are built and then they have riverfronts a lot of them use the riverfront heavily lafayette doesn't really use the riverfront that much i mean it's it's great for the backyards of people here but we don't really have like a um what do you call that a a boardwalk or anything like that yet why so i guess how is lafayette so different i guess it is different but in the sense that all these other cities have such a high traffic flow through the interstates and their cities are built around the interstates and they're very visible from the interstate and lafayette when you pass through lafayette it doesn't look like much when you're passing from I-10 
through going to Baton Rouge or vice versa. But when you get off the interstate and you get into the Lafayette core, it's a, it's a different animal. And I guess I'm trying to figure out like how, how are we being seen from a national standpoint that gets the attention of top golf and Dave and Busters, which otherwise you would miss it if you just stayed on I-10. Yeah. Well, I'm sure they do a lot of market research, you know, well, and they right. pull up that information. I'm talking about the demographics of the population. If you, I believe now, if you look at Acadiana, we're looking around seven or 800,000 people, you know, in that's what you would that. call the market area. And that's fairly significant when you look at the overall size. And I think, you know, when the Camellia Bridge was built and that started developing the south side of Lafayette, and, of course, we have what's going on in Youngsville. They have a great mayor, and he's very forward-thinking and doing a lot of great things in that community. And so I just think we've had a lot of population growth in the south side of town. And uh, so these big-box retailers are seeing that. And, of course, I believe Costco kind of started that. And so it's kind of kind of a gravity model. The other big box retailers want to go where people are going to be going for entertainment and shopping, and and uh, and that's kind of become the retail center of Lafayette. Yeah, and speaking of that area, you have a a an expansion of your car wash brand going in that area. I think it's it's not far from opening, right? Yeah, as a matter of fact, we're um, we're opening today. Oh, wow. Yeah. Matter of fact, we're doing free washes today. Well, look, there you go. So if you're watching, I, I did not know that. That's that's fun. So in that vein, what what led you to getting into the car wash business? I'm in a group. It's called it's a dealer group. There's 20 dealers. of. Uh, it's called a 20 group. So I'm in a Nissan and a Subaru 20 group. And uh, one of the dealers from California, his partner, his financial partner, got in a car wash car wash business uh, four or five years ago. And every time I'd go to a meeting, I'd hear more and more about the car wash business. And uh, the guy's name is Lawrence. And so I contacted Lawrence and said, okay, I've been hearing enough about the car wash business. I need to know more. And he put me in touch with, uh, with a, a guy here in Louisiana that's, that uh, sells the equipment uh, for car wash businesses. And I looked at the model and made the decision that, you know, it was something different, but it still has to do with cars. And so I made the decision, what, three three years ago, yeah. something like that, that, uh, I was going to get in the car wash business and, uh, but I wanted to do it with a first class facility building <clears throat> the best equipment on the market and, uh, to try to elevate, uh, the people that we hire, the, the, the way the uniforms that we have for them, uh, just wanted it to be, you know, the, the very best that we could do in this market. And, um, Took me a while to come up with a name. Yeah, <laughs> that a name that you can get the domain name for. I can't believe Mr. Bubbles Auto Spa wasn't taken, but I oh, know that's uh, fine. I got it. And um, and then you know you kind of alluded to this earlier before we started this this podcast, but you know I know people are talking about all the car washes that have that have sprung up in Lafayette, and I agree. Uh, but but I was kind of the first one that sprung up. At you know Classic's been here for a while, and they do a great job. Yeah. Um, but um, one thing that I learned, because I, I drove to Dallas or flew to Dallas and met with the uh, architect that designed uh, my first car wash, and he showed me car washes in that market. And literally, you would have one car wash on one street at an intersection, and then the cross street would have another car wash. I mean, they'd be half a block away, and I'm going, well, how can that be? You know, how can two car yeah. washes next to each other both survive? And what I've learned about the car wash business is it's all about location and it's all about traffic. And 
And it's all about being convenient. So people are going to go to the wash that's most convenient to them. I've learned that you need to be on the going home side of the road and not on the going to work side because people don't want to wash on the way to work. They want to wash on their way home. So that's important. And uh, so even though there's car washes close by, people, as long as you do a great job, they're going to go to the one that's easiest to go to. And I was thinking about that this morning. There's got to be in this market – just in Lafayette alone, there's got to be a couple hundred thousand cars. Oh, yeah. You know? Oh, yeah. There's 200,000 cars. There may be six or seven car washes, but, you know, if everybody washed their car through one of these these uh, tunnel car washes once a month, that's a lot of car washes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, I whenever people, and I and I write about a car dealership coming, and, I, you know, I try to write, I write about anything that's being built, and usually no matter what it is. I do have discretion whenever it's a business that is renovating a property that may not be a business that I think is suitable, but if it's a new construction, no matter what it is, I'll write about it. And there have been over the past, you know, a couple of years, several car washes popping up. And whenever I see it, I don't mind car washes. I think they're great because if you can have a clean car and if you have access to having a clean car and it's, it's affordable, I think everybody needs to have a clean car because an ugly car doesn't look good going down the road. And if it's clean, it's nice and shiny and just looks good. You feel good in it but people in the comments will and I, I can hear the comments coming as soon as i see a car wash being built i'm like man they they immediately go to this um i don't know if it's like a breaking bad theme i've never watched breaking bad but they said it must be a money laundering business. <laughs> yeah, I saw Breaking Bad, and they do have a car wash in there. <laughs> what? So what? I don't. First of all, I I had to actually Google money laundering, and I still don't quite fully understand it. But I don't. I'm gonna I'm gonna go on a limb here, and I don't think that that's what this is. Obviously, you have a car wash. Uh, where do Where do you think people get that idea? Like, obviously, they're probably thinking that they don't look that busy. I mean. The car wash, especially classic, it's on a on a weekend. The cars are packed in there; they're lined up, and then the other ones, yours, they're they're slowly getting the brand out there and brand awareness built built up because classic's been here for over ten years. Um, but what do you say to people that are you know thinking that this could be a money laundering company? Well, I don't know. First of all, we take very little cash. Uh, most people don't pay for cash today. They pay with a debit card right. or a credit card. Uh, and a lot of our customers are members. And so their credit cards just build every month for their membership. Uh, but maybe from the Breaking Bad movie, because I saw it, they were laundering <laughs> cash through that one. Uh, but we, uh, you know, when I first got in the business, I thought we were going to take a lot more cash. And I was, you know, do I need to get a, a, like a Brinks to come by and pick up the cash? But we take so little cash. I mean, it's, it's, it's very, maybe, Two or three percent of our sales yeah. are cash, so there's not much cash rolling through that business. It's all credit cards and debit cards and so forth. And that all is paper trail. You got to keep track yeah, of all yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so, um, so I, I don't, I don't know where that came from, but, but you know, the car wash business is it doesn't take a lot of people, um, you, you know, and uh, you know, you, once you get your memberships built up, you got that uh, every month. You have that money coming in. And, uh, you know, on a, on a Saturday, we'll wash 400, 450 vehicles a day. And when you think about it, you know, our basic wash is $8. Um, you can get a membership for unlimited washes for like $16 a month. Um, yeah. So when you think about it, is it really worth your time to wash your car at home <laughs> and get the hose out and the soap and all that and all the time it takes when you can drive through and 
three minutes, you're through the car wash. You got a nice vacuum system to vacuum your your vehicle when you get through. So uh, I love it, you know, and and uh, I like my car being clean. And you know, going back to the car business, people don't realize that when you don't take care of a car, it depreciates the value of it significantly. And so if you were to, whether you wash it yourself or go to one of my competitors, if you were to go through and get one of the washes, we have one of our washes includes ceramic coating and waxes and all that stuff and tire shine. And you you go through on a regular basis and you maintain your vehicle and you go to trade it in three or four years from now, you're going to get that money back in resale value. Yeah. You know, because you've taken care of the vehicle, you've protected the paint and the interior and so forth. It's crazy that you mentioned that because I, I believe that too. And I know that, you know, that's true with anything you take care of. Usually the, the, the value of it's better. Um, so last year, this is kind of when the, the automotive market was kind of on a weird area where used cars were selling for a lot more than what they were selling back in pre COVID. And then the new car market was on fire. Like there was this new cars flying out of the dealerships left and right. And it's interesting that my wife got a, uh, we went to Hampton, got a Toyota Corolla IM. It was like the last version of this car that was ever going to be made. And they were going to be switching to a new Toyota Corolla model. And that's completely different. So we bought the last one on the lot. And I think we paid, you know, probably around 18, 19,000 MSRP. And that was in 2018. And I know how cars are, you know, usually when you drive it off the lot, they say that, you know, you lose about half the value. And I know some of that it depends on the brand and all that. But last year we, she was interested in getting an, uh, like a, like a midsize SUV. She wanted something bigger because our little boy, we have a son, he's getting into sports and he's going to have to start having friends soon. So we wanted a bigger vehicle. And she was looking at a vehicle and she did the Kelly blue book on her car. I think a lot of people that are at least smart and are car shopping, try to get their value and try to see where they're at. And she sent me a screenshot of what Kelly blue book was saying. And I was like, that can't be true. That's, that's not real. Like you should, you shouldn't be getting that much for your car. They Kelly blue book was telling her that she could get for her car trade in value between 16 and $18,000. She bought the car for about $18,000. I was like, I said, Kelly, uh, this might be a good time to get a vehicle. Like it's crazy. And sure enough, we, we traded it in and got, I think it was uh 17,000 for the car. I was like, what world are we living in where you pretty much got your money back? Yes. Like that's, that's insane. Like, yeah, we had people coming in that had bought vehicles two or three years, particularly with Subaru, two year old Subaru. They'd come in and trade it in and we would give them all what they pay for it back because of the supply and demand. Um, it it was crazy. You know, we were going, wow, this car is, you know, (laughs) worth what we sold it to them for two years ago. It's got, 25,000 miles on it. Um, but that was then. I mean, the yeah. market is now returning more back to normal. But when there was such a shortage of new vehicles, it drove up the price of used vehicles yeah. significantly. And people are talking about, yeah, but I can't get a discount on a new car. Or some dealers are charging over less. That's true. But you're also getting 20 or 30% more for your vehicle right, than right. it would have been worth a year ago or two yeah. years ago before the pandemic hit. So, it's, yeah, it's, I guess it's kind of like the housing market, you know, uh, we sold our first home for a whole lot more 
than we bought it for. And it, I mean, typically homes and property, I think the property itself is what appreciates homes. I think still depreciate a small amount, but we got, a, we got a lot back. And when we bought a new home, we also bought a new home when things like the interest rates are starting to go up and, and the value of homes and, and material were like wood and all that good stuff. I think even windows were uh, a commodity that, that was hard to come by. And um, we paid, I think, probably a lot more for the house that we got into now. So it just kind of, it feels like the, the shift was almost equal, but it felt, it felt good selling the house and selling the car for way more than what we initially paid for it. So it's just weird how the markets have been. It's just crazy. Um, but yeah, man, we're at, we're at about 46 minutes. I didn't know if there was anything that we left out. I know you mentioned that you're building a new Subaru, uh, facility. And I think that's crazy because the, the stuff that you have on that property, you're going to have, um, a small and large dog park, which is really cool. Uh, and then you're going to have a dog wash, which is also available to the public for a small fee that I, I remember you mentioning. So touching on that, and then we'll close out. What what led to expanding Subaru? Because people, whenever I wrote about it, people were like, are they really selling that many Subarus? I mean, I see a Subaru on the road here and there, but not like in mass quantities like you see Hondas and Nissans and all that. But like, so what led to the expansion of Subaru? And I know we, you told me, but I kind of want to hear it and kind of get your perspective on it in a different light. Well, our, our existing facility is on two and a half acres. The building's about 14 or 15,000 square feet. Uh, we've gone from selling five or six Subarus a month when we got it, the product uh, the product line about eight or nine years ago. And now we sell, well, we sell whatever we get. So if we get 60 in a month, we sell 60. If we get 70, we sell 70 in a month. And Subaru came to me and said, hey, Bob, we'd like for you to build a bigger facility. Um, Lafayette's uh, market is growing. Uh, they gave me some monetary incentive to do that and said, if you'll build a new facility, we will increase your availability to hundred a month. And so that's what started the process of looking for property because I build a bigger facility. They're going to give me more vehicles. The more, the market demand is there. We can sell a hundred a month. I haven't been selling a hundred a month because I can't get a hundred <laughs> a month. Um, and so, like I said, we, we, we bought that property. It's going to be on about eight acres. Um, you know, Subaru loves pets. And um, the typical Subaru buyer loves pets, and I thought it'd be great. Well, let's do a let's do a large and a, a large dog park and a small dog park, and this put a dog wash next to it, and it'll be very inexpensive. The park will be open to anybody that wants to use it. Matter of fact, we're going to have a bridge going across the creek. It's going to be along the creek where the residential development oh, we're nice. doing can also access the dog park. So it'll be open 24-7. We're going to light it well. We're going to be safe at night. It's going to have, you know, fences around it to separate the big dogs from the little dogs. Um, and it's free to the public, you know. Yeah. I, I also sponsored the dog park at uh, the small dog park at Muncus Park, my, my wife and I. Um, donated the money to build that one. So we, we're on Acadiana Animal Aid. We're big, yeah, big animal lovers. We're big animal lovers. And so I just felt it it was something that we could give back to the community by doing another dog park and, and adding that amenity with the Subaru building. That's amazing. Look, I, I look forward to seeing the success of all of your companies and, of course, your, your new ventures in real estate and all that good stuff. I look forward to uh, writing about all the construction that I'm pretty sure is to come. Uh, last thing before we go, I know I said the Subaru thing would be the last thing, but I kind of want to know 
and maybe other people listening want to know is what does Bob like to do away from all of the hustle and bustle of work? What is your pastime? What is something that kind of frees your mind away from numbers? Cause numbers can flow around your head all day long, but like, what do you do to escape for a weekend? Well, I escaped for weeks. <laughs> I have I have a boat that I built five years ago, and I am actually now taking it around the world. Wow. And uh, started January a year ago, and it's currently in Australia, and we're headed west. We've gone all the way across to the Panama Canal and done, uh, you know, Tahiti and Bora Bora and all the Society Islands and Fiji and New Zealand, Vanuatu, Solomon Islands, and now Australia. And uh, in a couple of weeks, I'll be in a place called Raja Ampat, which is a southeast part of Indonesia. We'll do uh, Malaysia and Thailand and the Maldives, and we'll go through the Red Sea and into the Mediterranean and, and then cross the Atlantic and go to Bermuda and then and then back to the Caribbean. Wow. So, uh, so I go typically for a couple of weeks at a time. Cause yeah. Where Cause you don't now, live on the boat at the, obviously <laughs> yeah. it's uh, it's this two day trip to, to get where it is now. And, uh, so I'll usually stay 10 days or so, and then two days back home. So I'll, I'll do that. You know, I've been doing that about once a month and I work from the boat. We have good internet okay. on the boat. So I'm able to work from the boat while I'm there. And uh, wow. so that's kind of, you know, I'm, I'm at the point in my life where I have a great president in my company and it allows me to travel a lot. And that's, that's my passion. I love to fish and I'm, I'm a technical diver. Um, I dive on a rebreather with a lot of people probably don't even know what it is. Yeah, uh, nope, but never heard uh, of it. I've been diving since I was uh, in high school. I probably have about 4,000 dives that wow. I've completed. And I'm a dive instructor. <laughs> yeah. What? Oh my God, dude! Yeah, doesn't stop. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. So, uh, so that's my passion. Okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. So, obviously, a water guy. Yes. Yeah. I, like warm I water, water guy. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's gotta right. be warm. It's gotta be warm. <laughs> warm and clear. Yeah. All right. So, when do you think the boat will have officially made the trip around the world? Uh, I think that we will be back uh, on the Caribbean side, uh, say the Bahamas. In uh, the spring of 24. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So, obviously, you park the boat, you come back home. Yep. Yep. And, yeah. Because a full-time crew, and they take care of the boat, and then I fly back and forth, nice. and then they'll move it to the next destination. Yeah. Wow. Yep. That's awesome, man. Well, look, Bob, I appreciate you taking the time. I know you're, you're a very busy guy, and I, and I love that you, uh, you, you had a chance to book and come on and talk about what you're doing and the companies and, of course, uh, some of your hobbies, and I, I love to, I love to talk with you about that. And uh, man, I really appreciate you uh, just taking the time. Yeah, well, I appreciate it. Enjoyed it. All right, man. Well, look, I look forward to seeing the success that you have moving forward, and all the other things that you have. And uh, guys, if you're listening, you can also listen to the audio version uh, coming up uh, later on this week. I'm gonna edit that and get that out there to you. So uh, I hope you enjoy the podcast, and we'll see you on the next one. All right, Bob. Have a good one.